Welcome to Campus House. My name is Mallory. Um, I am on staff. I am not a normal part of the teaching rotation. Um, I work more on the administrative side of the ministry, but um, I am glad to be with you today, um, and I'm glad you're here. Whether you are here for the first time or um, you've been here the whole summer, you're just here a portion of the summer, um, we're really glad that you came out today. I'm glad that you're with us. Um, so we are going through a series this summer um, called Elijah and Elisha, the naturally supernatural work of God. And we're using First and Second Kings as a backdrop um, for the stories of prophets Elijah and Elisha. And the purpose of this series is for us to see how God demonstrates his power, his justice, and his grace through the lives of these very um, right, ordinary prophets. I don't know if that's a phrase, but the lives of these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So just for a little context, um, First and Second Kings was originally written as one book to document um, Israel's line of kings after King David and David's son Solomon. And as you read through these books, um, you'll notice that things just get increasingly uh, precarious for the nation of Israel. Um, the nation's leaders begin uh, worshiping other gods, um, gods of the, of the nations, um, and just listening to, to false prophets, and basically leading the whole nation away from the one true God. And so Elijah the prophet comes on the scene in 1 Kings 17, and he's basically um, God's representative to the people, God's mouthpiece. He performs miracles, and he is there to urge the people to turn back to God. And then a couple weeks ago, we went through, um, well, we ended 1 Kings and went into 2 Kings, and we read that Elijah was taken up to heaven, and then the man who he mentored, Elisha, assumed the role as the prophet. And so um, early in 2nd, oh, sorry, so today we're picking up in 2 Kings um, 5, and you can flip there in your Bibles. There are Bibles at the end of the rows if you need them. Um, but I'll also have the words on the screen if you want to use your phone, um, whatever um, is most helpful to you. And so we um, read, just to catch us up, Elisha has been performing miracles, going about his ministry, and then we get to this chapter, which is the story um, of an unlikely healing that contradicted expectations. So um, I'm, I'm glad to be able to dig into this with you. Um, so I'm going to pray first, and then um, we'll start reading. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you are always drawing us to yourself through, through your word, through worship, through just being together. We thank you that we could uh, gather in this space today, and I thank you for each of the people here and I pray, Lord, that we, would, um, that we would just receive you, that we would receive your invitations and your words, um, that we would receive those personally, Lord. God, we hear, we hear these words as a church, and we want to apply them, but we also want to take them to heart personally. And so, God, I ask that you would speak to us. We just acknowledge that you're, you're in this room. And we want to be mindful of you today. 
So Jesus, thank you, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So in this story, um, we're primarily going to focus on two contrasting characters, Naaman, um, who is not an Israelite. He was an Aramean. Um, and he seeks out Elisha to be healed of leprosy. Um, and then the other character is Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant. So he was an Israelite, um, and he eventually rebels against the Lord, which we will see. And in both characters, we'll notice how each carried very weighty expectations of how um, they thought things were supposed to go. And we'll follow this this theme of expectations, that thread of expectations, um, all the way through this text. And I'm confident that we can all identify uh, with having expectations for the way that we want our lives to play out. Um, And specifically, the realization uh, that some of our expectations have gone unmet. That some things are markedly different than what you hoped for or expected, and I want to be sensitive that, to that today um, because that's hard, and I'm with you in that. But um, our expectations, the ones that we have for our future and the ones that we feel are missed expectations or unmet have huge implications on our relationships with God. And a big question that I want us to consider as we work through this text is whether we're giving God access to to enter into and shape and refine our expectations in ways that are obedient, in ways that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and an embodied in loving and trusting relationship with the Lord. So we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So I'm going to pause there. Right away, um, we're introduced to Naaman from uh, Aram, which was a bordering state, a bordering nation. And at this point in time, um, Israel was actually split into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And so this was a Syrian nation that bordered the northern kingdom. And we read that Naaman was in a position of great authority, um, but he was burdened with a skin disease of some sort. Um, We read leprosy, but we don't really know what specific skin disease that meant. We learn that Naaman's wife has an Israelite servant girl who was taken from her home, living in a foreign land, um, but obviously still holding on to her faith um, in God, that God can heal. And I think this is 
um, really interesting because she's not even given a name in Scripture, and yet she's the impetus for this whole story. And she's confident that God can heal, that God will come through. So Naaman goes to the king of Aram for his blessing on his travel plans, and the king sends a letter to the king of Israel. And um, at this, in this time, it was not uncommon for um, prophets to be connected for or connected to the king's court. Um, so politics and religion were very much intertwined. And so um, he sends a letter to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel. Um, panics when he receives this letter. And this contrast is really interesting because you have the nameless servant girl who's living in a foreign land, confident that God can heal. And then you have the person who is supposed to be leading the nation of Israel and completely faithless, doesn't even consider the fact that God might be able to heal Naaman. He just panics and thinks that the other king is picking a fight. And this reaction of the king is telling because it likely represented what the whole nation of Israel um, was going through, how they were treating God at this time. The spiritual climate um, was just pretty dark in this time. So that's set up for the story. So in verse 8, we'll start. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So we read that Naaman and his entourage travel to Elisha, um, and Elisha sends a messenger, doesn't even go out himself, but sends a messenger out to greet them, and to a man of authority and power like Naaman, this was probably um, a direct insult to his pride. It was considered incredibly rude. And um, that probably fueled his anger for what happens next. So he's told to go wash in the Jordan. And at this time, um, the Jordan had a reputation for being a really dirty river. And um, where I'm from, the Wabash had a similar connotation. Um, And so that's kind of what I'm equating it to in in my mind. And so uh, Naaman says, here are some other rivers. I should probably just go wash in them because they're even cleaner than your river. And so he's furious, and uh, this quote by Raymond Dillard tells us why. He says, Naaman expected Israel's God and prophet to be just like what he had known at home. He had brought plenty of money, and so he expected the prophet to deliver on the magic. Naaman wanted vending machine grace. Put your money in and take your blessing. The prophet was expected to appear, accept the pay, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So Naaman had an expectation of the way that this situation was supposed to unfold and the way that God was supposed to act. Last Christmas, um, my sister and brother-in-law had a gender reveal party um, for their third baby. And um, living a couple hours away, they called me, my dad called me on FaceTime so I could be part of things. 
And uh, so my sister and her husband and their two boys um, stood by a Christmas tree that they were going to light up in either blue or pink lights. And my younger nephew, um, Owen, was absolutely hoping for a girl. And he was convinced it was going to be a girl. And he loved his cousin, Nora, and just really wanted a sister. So the tree lit up blue, and he just starts bawling. <laughs> and everyone is, like, cheering and having a good time and, like, celebrating. And then all of a sudden, like, everyone starts paying attention to Owen, who's just crying. He's just so sad. And they were moving toward him and comforting him through uh, that missed expectation that he had. And eventually he came around to the idea of having a little brother, um, and the relationship is fully restored. Uh, Joe, can you go to the next slide? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so that was him holding his little brother. So now he loves him. But in that moment, his expectation was missed, and his reaction um, was a very visceral reaction to disappointment. And we may not always react in the same way as Owen when our expectations go unfulfilled, but if I'm honest, um, sometimes I do react that way. Uh, but I think we can all connect with Naaman in this story to a certain degree. And Joe, you can go to the next slide. Because Naaman utters the words in verse 11, I thought that he would. Does that resonate at all when we think about the missed expectations in our own lives. I thought that this relationship would fulfill me. I thought that I wouldn't feel lonely anymore. I thought that I'd be happier in my job, that I'd feel more purpose, that the anxiety would diminish, that things would just be easier. Do we ever say something similar about God? I thought that God would heal me. I thought that he would bring justice. I thought that God would have ended this season of suffering. I thought that he would demonstrate his power. I thought by now that he would have given me a relationship, a baby, a job, an answer, something. I thought that he would. There's absolutely something healthy and good about lamenting and grieving our losses and our hurts and our missed expectations, and we get tons of examples of that in Scripture, that grieving is good. But I think, as I was thinking about this, uh, we need the Spirit's help to be on guard um, because it would be easy to let that grieving morph into a questioning of God's intentions and his character, believing that he has to prove himself worthy of our worship. And we can become disappointed with God when he doesn't perfectly align with our expectations for how we think he should operate in the world. Author J.B. Phillips calls this worshiping the false god of the perennial grievance. And he writes that if we blame God for every missed expectation, everything we can't make sense of, and if we believe that God has less good sense and love than we do, then that road leads nowhere because we can't worship a disappointment. But it's not as simple as saying expectations are bad because they're not, and many of our desires and expectations are God-given. And when they're shaped in the context of relationship with him, they're rooted in trust and a desire for obedience. But when the context is more transactional, like Naaman anticipated, our, our attitude can turn into one of entitlement 
and we can demand things from God that just aren't ours to demand. So I think this raises the question, at what point does expectation become entitlement? And what is our posture, what is our response if our expectations are not fulfilled? We'll read again verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman here is a picture of reluctant obedience. He initially resists the instruction, but ultimately decides to step into the Jordan by faith and obey what the Lord was calling him to through Elisha. He submits. He makes himself vulnerable. He forsakes what he thinks a man of his position deserves, and he literally lowers himself into the river. He practices trust in the midst of uncertainty and skepticism that God would bring about good in this particular way. And he declares his devotion to the God of Israel and submitting his expectations, humbling himself and receiving the grace of healing. The response is worship and all-in commitment. He's in awe at the revelation of who and what is true, even if encountering God's grace looked different from what he initially anticipated. And this is not to say that um, if we only take the right obedient step that God grants us every result we desire in that moment, we know that that's not true. And yet scripture tells us that we can be confident that God is always lavishing his grace on us, always surrounding us with his presence, and always at work redeeming all things for his glory, even if we can't yet see the blessing or understand what he's presently doing. 1 Corinthians 13:12 says, "For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known." We read that Naaman offers Elisha a gift, but Elisha refuses um, because Naaman is from a culture where pagan gods needed to be bribed and appeased. And prophets needed paid. So it was really important for Elisha to differentiate himself um, from the false gods and prophets of culture. And he wanted to send a clear message to Naaman um, that our God is a God of grace and that Naaman 
was just a recipient of his grace that day. Verses 17 and 18 cover some um, logistical concerns that Naaman has about worshiping the God of Israel um, in his home country, and he asks for some literal loads of earth. And when I read that the first time, I was really confused. Um, but there are a couple of different suggestions of what that might mean. Um, and it could be that he still believed um, what other nations believe that gods could only be worshipped on their territory, and so he wanted to take some of that territory back to his home country. Um, but other scholars suggest maybe he just wanted a tangible representation of the encounter. They're not quite sure. Um, and then he, he says that when he has to go into the temple of a sun god, um, that he's just going through the motions, he's not worshiping, um, and he asks for uh, asks if that's okay with Elisha, and Elisha doesn't affirm or deny. He just says, go in peace. So as we read this to you, identify with any part of Naaman's story. Can you point to a moment where you experience the grace of obedience, the grace of releasing what you think you need or deserve? Verse 19, after Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and then he tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elijah asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male or female slaves. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. So here we meet Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant. And Gehazi was an Israelite um, who had spent enough time with Elisha to witness miracles that we read about um, in even the previous two chapters. Uh, Gehazi was right there. In other words, he was familiar with the God of Israel. Um, but despite that, it's clear that Gehazi is not in step with the Lord or with Elisha at this point in time. Gehazi was um, a spiritual insider. He was um, the assistant to Israel's prophet. And yet, I think this reveals that it's very possible for us to be 
near the things of God in terms of being familiar with Scripture, um, rhythms of prayer, service to others, doing good things for God, and yet we can be far from the heart of God himself in the midst of all of those things, far from this place of intimate relationship. Most of us have probably heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And I just wonder for Gehazi um, if the presence and the movements of God eventually just became ordinary to him. Maybe he grew up in a practicing Jewish household, memorizing long passages of scripture, but then those no longer penetrated his heart. Maybe he had experienced a hardship that made him skeptical of God's goodness. We don't really know. But Gehazi says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him, from Naaman. And Gehazi, too, had an expectation of what he thought he deserved, and he acted on it. He had the expectation that it was right and just for Naaman to give a generous gift out of the abundance of his wealth, and that Elisha had missed an opportunity for them to profit, and ultimately that some money and clothing would give him the joy and satisfaction that he was after. I wonder if somewhere along the line, Gehazi became numb to the abundant goodness and grace and power of God. It seems that he was not captivated by God's work in Naaman's life. He only saw a missed opportunity. He only saw what he didn't have, and it led him to leap over the boundary line into the worship of his own desire rather than the worship of the God that he knew. Paul Tripp writes um, in his book, Awe, sin replaces submission with self-rule. It replaces gratitude with demands for more. It replaces vertical joy with horizontal envy. And Gehazi directly contradicts Elisha's demonstration of grace to Naaman. Um, he blatantly opposes God's instructions in Scripture in favor of his own will, and he disobeys eyes to the ground seeking what he thinks will satisfy Trip continues, the seedbed for a life of obedience is awe. When awe of something other than God replaces awe of God, disobedience will replace obedience. A life of submission to God's will, plan, commands, and purposes flows out of the worship of the one who was given those commands. Obedience is being in such awe of God that you are blown away by his wisdom, power, love, and grace, which makes you willing to do whatever he says is right and best. Obedience is deeply more than begrudging duty. It is a response of joyful willingness, ignited by, stimulated by, and continued by a heart that has been captured by God's glory, goodness, and grace. Our obedience and our worship do not earn us favor, but rather they are spirit-empowered responses to God's gracious movement toward us. And ironically, it's the servant of the prophet who, in his greed, deceives both Naaman and Elisha, threatening to tarnish the reputation of the Lord and receiving a skin disease as the consequence of his skin. Do you identify with any part of Gehazi's story? Can you point to a moment where you grasped onto something that you expected would bring you joy and satisfaction? 
did you, do you desire for God to recapture your awe of him? In the story, we have two, two very different characters, two sets of expectations, two responses to the way and the will of God. And this theme of, of God disrupting expectations is echoed all throughout the New Testament. And uh, Jesus actually references this story um, recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read it. He's talking to um, people in his hometown. So this is Luke chapter 4, verses 23 through 30. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus is speaking to members of his hometown when he gives these examples of God demonstrating his grace and power to the Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish tradition. And this agitated them. And although they knew to be expecting a Messiah, they, they knew what scripture said, they could not imagine that this Jesus from their hometown could possibly be him. Because they wanted a king, they wanted political power, security from surrounding nations, a prophet that would cater to their desires, and perhaps they felt entitled to this because of what scripture had promised them. But Jesus was simply too ordinary, too plain, too alternative. They wanted a king, but he gave them even more. He gave them a savior. And he gave them and he gave us a way out from the oppression of sin by paying the ultimate penalty for it through death on the cross. And his resurrection, three days later, sealed victory over death, promises eternal life for us as co-heirs of God's kingdom when we put our faith in Jesus alone. And that abundant life starts now. That's not reserved for later. But our eyes to see, our eyes are prone to see um, missed opportunities, and our hands have a tendency to grasp onto things that we think will satisfy. And our awe of the Creator can be replaced by the awe of created things we desire, and it's never enough. We always want more. So if our expectations um, and whether or not they're fulfilled are always prone to shifting and changing, and disappointment, then what is certain? Where can we place our hope? First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, 
or fade. Another translation says that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse 13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what would happen if instead of viewing life through the lens of scarcity, we practice seeing God's abundance and naming the graces that are promised us in Christ? What if we loosened our grip on our plans, increasingly let go of what we think will satisfy and give us life, and instead practice leaning into and abiding in Jesus for all of our needs and desires? Do we need to submit any of our expectations to the Lord today? Do we expect that God himself is more than enough to satisfy us? Do we believe that he is worthy of our awe and capable of moving way beyond our expectations? We're going to take communion together. So if you're passing that, you can get that ready. And it's in communion that we remember the most powerful example of submission and obedience to the Lord. We remember Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane faced his impending death and yet still said to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. We remember Jesus as the one who experienced the wrath of evil and therefore can identify with suffering and with pain and with disappointment. And we remember him as a good father that we're not submitting to and hoping in a nameless, um, apathetic being, but a kind and loving father. So if you're a believer, um, we invite you to take the bread and the cup and remember Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, go ahead and pass that on by. But um, I invite you to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you, um, no matter what expectations of him you are bringing to the table today. And I want to close with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Oh, to grace, how great.